this is going to be focused on investing as the uh, announcement and the newsletter that went out today uh, described. Before we get started, just a couple quick announcements. And all, these are always the same announcements, but we'll go through them. So first of all, make sure to join, visit the website, odysonfinance.com. Uh, we put up some new blogs and uh, there's about five new blogs coming out these next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for those. And a lot of resources on there. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. We just sent one out today. If you want a copy of it, just let me know and I can forward it to you. And make sure to follow the Instagram account. Julie's doing a great job posting about once every couple of days and a lot of good infographics on that. So if you're the type of learner that prefers visual versus reading blogs or listening to these podcasts, uh, take a look at the Instagram. And also make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel and the podcast. All of these get recorded and thrown on the YouTube channel and podcast a couple of days afterwards. In fact, the Ask the CFP Part 1 video just got put up yesterday, and it should be on the podcast today, so look out for that. And we've got some pretty exciting news for you. About one month out, we're just waiting for our web developers to finish a few things, and we think it's going to be a really great resource for you. So we will let you know what that is uh, very shortly. And also, we have one new sponsor, and that is Sunbit. And we're going to talk more about them at a future date, and we're also going to send out some info on them. But a really great resource if you own a practice and you need a way for patients to have a payment plan. Sunbit offers a, a great way to do that. And let's go ahead and get started. So we're gonna be talking all about investing today with our CFP partners. I'm gonna introduce them one more time in case you don't know them or you missed last week's uh, meeting. First of all, we have Adam Schmela and Adam has helped individuals and practice owners make educated and informed personal and professional financial decisions. Being a third generation business owner, the husband of an OD and a certified financial planner gives him a unique perspective that separates him and his firm from other advisory firms. He's regularly published in optometry publications such as Review of Optometric Business and was named to Investopedia's top 100 financial advisors in 2019. So welcome again, Adam. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for yeah. having us again, or me again. Yeah, no that problem. <laughs> And yeah, and then Natalie is our other CFP. So Natalie Schmuck is the founder and owner of Hayes Wealth Advisors, LLC, a financial planning investment management service for employed optometrists, practice owners, and their families. Natalie started her career in the private wealth management division of SunTrust Bank in 2006 and earned her certified financial planner designation in 2009. Natalie graduated with honors from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, and also received her master's of business, business administration there. So welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. And looks like, yeah, we got a good amount of people on the live event. So yeah, we'll just jump right into the program. So today we're just focused on investing. Last week was budgeting and debt management. And then today we're jumping into investing. I know it's a topic a lot of people wanted to hear both our CFP's opinions on. So we got some great questions, both uh, ones that me and Dat put together and a lot that came from the group. So we're just going to dive right into these. Uh, and then we'll Start with question number one. Uh, some financial pundits talk about index funds and how they're a ticking time bomb because there's a massive amount of money poured into them. What's your opinion on this? And Natalie, if you want to start this one. Yeah, so that, first of all, question is excellent. Um, index investing has become much more popular and then the derivative of that is ETFs, and um, I was trying to make a pun because ETFs are usually a derivative product, but, um, but, um, but you know, when you look at the big picture, 
index funds account for about 14% of the U.S. equity market. So today we'll talk, I'm sure we'll get into some different markets, but for the most part, I think when we say the market, we refer to the U.S. equity market and probably more specifically, usually it's alluding to the S&P 500, um, but just 14%. So 86% of U.S. equities are owned by non-index funds. Um, now that is up from 7%, so it's double off of 7% in 2010, but it doesn't concern me. And here's a really big reason why. Um, back in 2000s and before, most company 401ks were held 100% in company stock. I mean, that's appalling these days to think that you had to get your paycheck from a company and own their stock for retirement. Um, but I think that what we're seeing here is a shift in investments that aren't looking at fundamentals. So index funds have to buy what's in their index, whether it's a good buy or a good price or what. Um, but that's been the case for a long time through company 401k plans. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's really a big problem. I think it's just a shift in the way the market works. And if anything, it's allowing investors to have access to broad diversification and then hopefully the other 86% is looking at fundamentals and not just buying because they have to, so. Yeah, and Adam, anything to contribute? Uh, not really. I mean, I think Natalie and I, we, what she doesn't know is that I was gonna say the exact same stat, right? <laughs> it, the, uh, and, and I think that was in Bogle's last book of all places, right? The, the father of modern indexing with, with John Bogle and the founder of Vanguard. I mean, I think, and to fill the, my, the, the optometry term in here, right? Sometimes when we read those things, we can become very, very myopic to the data that we're looking at. But when you look big picture at everything, to Natalie's point, as of, I think that data was 2008, 2019, it was 14%. So yes, if all you're looking at, if you're looking at, you know, through, through that pinhole of, oh my gosh, look at the massive inflow of index funds and how much money is owned by index funds. It's like, well, yeah, but we also have to look at the fact that the market is an incredibly efficient pricing mechanism and pricing machine. And just the volume of trades and how efficient it is at pricing securities the last year, 2019, an average of $443 billion was traded on a daily basis. And yes, index funds, index funds and the underlying securities are part of that volume, but it's, it's, it's not something that I'm concerned with. And, and Aaron and Natalie and I were talking before we hit record that, before we went live here, that I'm, I'm, I'm candidly concerned that like, I'm a really, really boring investor. I'm a re and, and, and hopefully that comes through here in today's conversation. And if there's one thing that I can impress upon everybody here is that when it comes to investing, boring is really, really good. One of my favorite quotes, and again, I just shared it with these two, so I'll share it again with everybody here. Uh, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's you know, right-hand man, um, a partner in, in Berkshire Hathaway, uh, his, he has many investing quotes, but one of my favorite of his is investing is like soap. The more you touch it, the less of it you have. And we're always looking for a reason to take action, right? And so we see these news articles coming out, a bubble in index, like, oh my gosh, a bubble. So I'm not going to digress even further there, but short answer, no, I'm not, I'm not concerned with it at all. All right, great. And just a reminder to everyone tuning in, if you have a question, make sure you can comment and I will ask it. But let's go ahead and jump on to the next question. Uh, this one's a little speculative, but... Why do you think the stock market, particularly tech stocks, are so high despite the economical hardship of people? Um, is it because bonds are so low that equities are the only place to be in? And Adam, if you, if you want to take that one first. 
can you pause this real quick while I go get my crystal ball? I, I left it in the kitchen <laughs> over here, right? All right, stupid sarcasm aside. Um, you're right, it is speculative in nature to say that. Uh, I do think that there is, yeah, we'll never be able to prove this, right? This is all theory, this is all speculation, but one would just, the from a common sense standpoint and an investment standpoint, yeah, one right now is looking at, okay, where can I get a return on our investment? If we look at some fundamental investing beliefs in knowing that one of the ways in which we can earn a return is looking at market risk, right? What is the risk that I'm willing to take to earn a return on my dollar relative to just keeping it in cash? And so you look at your options right now, it's like, well, where am I gonna go? Interest rates where they're at right now, spread between treasuries and corporate debt, you know, the yield on bonds, it's like, okay, well, that's nothing really to write home about. CDs, second to none, right? Taxable interest, horrible, or I shouldn't say horrible, but I want to be careful in my in my my absolutes here as, as far as how I say it. Generally speaking, probably not the wisest investment for a lot of individuals on this call there. I think that's as specifically vague as I can be. Um, you know, real estate, which I know we're going to talk about, is definitely an option to consider. But if you're talking about, quote unquote, traditional investments, yeah, equities aren't. Uh, it's, it's an attractive it's, it's an attractive place to place money right now, because candidly, what other options do we have? And you combine the 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 lack of other options with the 24-7 news and financial market cycle that we're in, your, your, your FANG stocks, the, these, you know, your Tesla, Apple, Apple does a four-for-one four split, Tesla announces a split. I mean, it's in front of us all the time. Robinhood added, um, Robinhood added, I believe it was, was it 3 million traders last month alone? Um, I mean, it's an insane, this is the first time that this generation that are, you know, that, that the younger generation right now is being introduced to this concept of day trading. And so it's, it's in front of us now. And I think that is partly what is driving up the interest in that and where you're going to put assets. So, yeah. Yeah, Natalie. Um, so I agree with that. I mean, when you look at interest rates and bond yields, you know, it, the best a bond I can find out there is Simon property group, which owns malls. And on a 10 year bond, they're yielding 4%. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of interest in buying into a mall bond for 10 years right now. So I, you know, there, there is an issue of not having a lot of options out there. The, um, I saw earlier this week and I have it pulled up this really fascinating graph and you say the market's up and there's nowhere to go, but it actually is the, the, um, the numbers on the S&P 500 and it's the super seven. So that's Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, and um, Tesla, which I don't know why, but anyways, they're up. I didn't make the graph. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. And the S&P 500, um, that's, but these, um, these stocks combined year to date are up 61.42% as of July 31st. I mean, that is incredible, especially given COVID. And the S&P 500 without those seven or six technically stocks is down 7.45%. So I actually don't think you're seeing a case of the market being up. I mean, down 7.45% isn't like crazy bad given everything that's going on. But I think that you are seeing a lot of interest in a very, very small number of securities. Um, so that, 
you know, I feel like I'm looking at these names and I'm like, I feel like I watched this movie back in 2000, but it, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not speculating. We're, I'm not going to sit there and speculate on individual stocks and we can talk about that in a little bit, but um, it is incredible to look at those securities versus the rest of the market or the S&P 500. Well, and, and Natalie, to your point there, correct me if I'm wrong on this, if, and, and I, I don't know the exact data off the top of my head, but I remember reading and, and seeing just recently that while that's what comes to mind right back in a 98, 99, 2000 tech bubble, when you look at the valuations of companies at that point and what, and what PE ratios were at that point relative to what they are right, what they are right now, this is not 2000. This is not the tech bubble crash. If you're, I mean, there's right? Figures lie and liars figure. There's so many different ways that you can that you can make data your friend or your enemy in that context. But if we're looking at one of the fundamentals of, of, uh, of, of company analysis, uh, of stock analysis, the, the valuations where they're at right now relative to price are not where they were back in 99. So it feels like that. And, and I, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. But what, what's the, what are the famous words in investing? But this time it's different. Um, I, I I don't know that. I mean, I'm not saying this time is different, but it, it's a it's a variation in the theme. Yeah. Oh. Ratio is I just froze, didn't I? Yep, you, you lost your audio there a little bit. Okay, now you're back. You're back? back now. Yeah. Okay. So price to earning is is the price of a stock relative to the company's earnings. So it's just a, a multiple. Um, so when we look at that, and it's 20 times earnings, that's really high. When it's seven times earnings, that's more in a historical range. So you're right. Um, the, the, the thing that surprises me is how closely that industry aligns being so industry specific um, that yeah. that's the one thing that raises my eyebrow a little bit. But that doesn't mean that the fundamentals aren't there, that the companies aren't performing. So that, that doesn't mean that it's not, they're not worthy of a 60% return year to date. It just means that it's surprising compared with the rest of the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then to anyone watching who's confer- confused about terms like PE ratio and all that, there is a guide on all of that on the website, odiesonfinance.com. Uh, it's called Guide to Individual Stocks. Dat wrote it. It's about 10 pages long, but if you want to learn about all those totally terms, right. yeah. Yeah, it's always a good thing just to be educated mm-hmm. on, even if you don't necessarily invest in individual stocks. So. All right, well, let's move on to the next question. Uh, Vanguard just released a new study that shows that moving forward returns for both stocks and bonds will be significantly lower and that the 4% rule isn't valid anymore. So some financial advisors are advising in retirement instead of a 60-40 split, they're advocating for more aggressive stock allocations. Uh, What are your opinions on this? And if someone wants to just go over the 4% rule as well, just to refresh viewers. And let's see here. Natalie, if you want to start this one. Yeah, so the the four percent rule says that a um, for any given pool of money, an indefinitely sustainable rate of distribution is four percent. So if I have a hundred dollars and I invest that theoretically over the rest of my life or indefinitely, I should be able to take four dollars a year out of that portfolio. Does that make sense? So when we look at what we need to spend on an annual basis, we actually divide that number by four percent. So take your annual spending, you divide it by 4%, and that's the pool of money that you need to build up to retire. Um, So for ODs, I actually love the 4% rule until you're in your 30s. (laughs) And then it's time to do some more sophisticated retirement analysis. So I actually think it's a really great guide for a younger 
um, doctor who's just trying to work off of what they know and um, their cash flows. But um, but I, I don't think there's a lot more sophisticated ways to look at retirement. Um, Adam, and I'm sure you, I know you do, but we both use a tool called a Monte Carlo analysis, which takes your needs and it takes them through all kinds of market simulations, including 2008 happening sometimes in a row. And it gives you a probability of success. And so that's a much more accurate way to um, look at retirement savings. But in terms of the 4% rule, again, you know, we had the same conversation back in 2008, 2009. I, I don't think, I think it's a fine guide for younger people. I think it works, you know, and then, but when you get older, you start looking at, is it all my money in 401ks and am I in the highest tax bracket? And those things matter enormously with the 401k or the 4% rule. So it, I think, again, fine for younger doctors need to do a little more in-depth research when you're a little older. And how about your opinions yeah. on the 60-40 split? 60% uh, stock, 40% bonds that gets thrown oh. in a lot. At retirement? So yeah. I, I so there's no so I, I do it backward. Um, I work with clients to figure out what their risk tolerance is. So we look at how upset they would be if they didn't hit the best returns in the market, and then we looked at whether they could sleep at night if their portfolio went down fifty percent, and then we look at what they need to retire, and we come up with an asset mix from there. So there's no rule of thumb, mm -hmm. you know. In general, if you're really conservative and you want all bonds, you might want to save a little bit more, but um, but there's no hard and fast rule to follow for people in retirement. Okay, great. Yeah, and and I and and to to dovetail off of what Natalie said, um, very very similar mindset. Uh, I, I think the idea of just using a blanket statement of oh I need to take four percent off my portfolio. I mean, there's so many other variables for an OD that's going to play into the equation of where the different diversified streams of income are going to be coming from in retirement. Do you own real estate, commercial or residential? Do your, what's your social security claiming strategy? Did you set up a cash balance plan in your portfolio and decide to annuitize your cash balance, um, uh, your cash balance benefit and create your own basically self-funded pension? Um, do you have do you have brokerage accounts that are that are combining with your four hundred one k where you're going to figure out what distribution strategies off of that? If you don't need that distribution off your portfolio and you're comfortable to Natalie's point when you go through a risk analysis and you understand what you're comfortable as an investor taking the other side of that equation you know there's a difference between an investor's risk tolerance and a financial plan's risk capacity and something that we talk about in retirement planning is called sequence of returns risk and that's a very very important component when you're talking about the distribution of assets in retirement every every OD on this call I promise you if you're in retirement you know exactly what I'm talking about I promise you, you will look and feel differently about your portfolio the day after you sell your practice, you retire, whatever that is. When you start depending on your portfolio for your paycheck, you can remember, oh, that guy told me that. You will feel differently. And with that different feeling, right, so much of investing is tied to the emotional component of the decisions that we make. And, that, and how you feel about your portfolio can influence your decision about your own personal risk tolerance. But the mark of a good advisor and a good planner and a good team is to understand what the risk capacity of your portfolio can and needs to be. So an example of that, I use a baseball metaphor to explain this to clients. And Natalie, I'm sure you've seen this as well. You have a, 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 
a prospective client come in the door mid to late 50s and they're in an 85% stock portfolio, 90% stock portfolio because advisors been churned through the wirehouse and no one's looked at it in 10 years. And so then you ask them the question, the metaphor that I use, like uh, depending on the person, I'll get kind of short and direct with them. I'll say, so why are you swinging for home runs when all you need is a single? Right. From an investment standpoint, if the return to Natalie's point from a Monte Carlo analysis, if the amount, if the return that we need to generate in your portfolio to provide the amount of income that we need off of that portfolio using either a straight 4% or we use a dynamic distribution strategy in our firm, that's a slightly higher than 4% rule. Um, and so depending on what your distribution strategy, if the rate of return that you need is X and historically speaking, a 50-50 portfolio gives you that. Well, why would you, why would you take more risk than what your portfolio needs? So I think that's an important component for, for and, and I know if, if you're, if you're with, if you're more than 10 years away from retirement, you're probably like, wah, 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 wah. like, I know this probably doesn't resonate very well right now, but if you are at that point of, of contemplating what retirement, what retirement's going to, what retirement income is going to have, and this does coincide with the 60-40 portfolio because if you are doing any type of research out there on your own to determine just what, you know, what do I look at? What, what direction do I go to? The 60-40 gets assassinated probably two to three times a year. Like someone writes an article that says, this is the death of 60-40. Oh, 60-40 is dead. It'll never survive because of market fluctuations and fiscal, you know, the Fed manipulating markets and quantitative easing, three point, like, fill in the blank you know, crisis du jour, the 60-40 gets assassinated two to three times a year. But here, it was looking back, here's some, so if we take the 60-40, I have some notes here that I wanna emphasize here just to illustrate how solid of a portfolio strategy this can be for as boring as it sounds. If we look at the S&P 500 being 60% and the Barclays aggregate bond being the 40% of our portfolio, in 91 years for the data that we have, the 60-40 returned on average 8.1% compared to the S&P 500, which is 9.5%, but the 60-40 had 40% less volatility. It's called standard deviations, right? If we think of standard deviation, like the ranges, if you look at a heart monitor, right, the spikes on that baseline, that's your standard deviation from a portfolio standpoint. How much did our returns fluctuate? It was down only 20 out of 91 years, and it never had a 10-year period where it lost money. Back to that crystal ball that I was talking about, like with that data behind us, for anybody to write differently, you, you can tell you get me on a soapbox here. There are certain items that really just kind of <laughs> jack me up a little bit here. But um, I, I think it's a blanket statement for anybody to say that, oh, yes, you're in retirement. 60-40 is a portfolio for you. Having said that, if that's what you're basing your retirement portfolio on, there are worse things that you could do to your portfolio than, than use a 60-40 split. Sorry, I'll stop talking now. Well, and to your, good. You, just to highlight, so over 91 years, there's give or take a 1% difference in the return between all S&P and 6040. So yeah. as a planner, you know, we're, we're going to recommend the least risky portfolio you need to meet your goals. And that's boring, but we'd much rather see you succeed then not because then you'd be upset with us. And, well, you know. and I want, uh, I know we have top questions to get to, but I want to insert one, uh, one question for everybody on this call to noodle on. And I got this quote from Nick Murray, who is a, a longtime advisor to advisors, if you will, been doing this for, gosh, I think Nick's been doing, been advising for 60 plus years. Very good writer. Outperformance of the market is neither a financial goal nor the ascertainment of a financial goal, right? 
What does it mean if you say I outperform the market? What, like ask yourself, what does that mean to you? It means nothing. Truly, it means nothing. But the question behind the question is, what does that return mean to the goal that's tied to that money, right? If I, if I say I want to beat the market or I want to make X rate of return, why? Like just start with that question and see what you write down on paper, see what your answers are. Because the answers, if you're true to yourself on that, through that thought process and that exercise, that might help bring clarity to the investment philosophy that you currently have, the structure of your portfolio, and may probe some questions as to whether or not what you're doing is truly what you need to do for your, for your, uh, for your financial plan. There, now I'm done. All right. And then a semi-related question, which you kind of already answered, but yeah. we got it multiple times. So I do want to ask it, uh, can a new OD graduating in their mid late twenties have a hundred percent stock index portfolio? Um, and is not being risky enough a risk on its own. Adam, if you want to start that one. I'll start with the second question first, because yes, that is an answer. And Natalie, Natalie talked about this a little bit earlier when, when, when she, when she illustrated that, you know, the, the less return that you get on your portfolio, the more capital requirement you're going to have to put into that account to get the same dollar amount. I grew up in Wisconsin. So the metaphor that I use is how do you build a snowman, right? You don't just gather up a bunch of snow and pile it on and go out and gather it, pile it on, go out and gather it, pile it on. You start with a little bit, right? And then you drop it in the snow. And then you roll it and then you roll it again and you roll it again. And with every revolution of that snowball, you pick up more and more snow. But we started with just an itty bitty little snowball right here. That's the seed. That's the funding. That's how much that's your contributions in your 401k. The less snow that you pick up on that revolution equates to the lower rate of return, which means to get to the same size snowball at retirement means that you're going to have to put a lot more of the snow into that snowball via your own paycheck. So that's where, yes, not being risky enough could be a risk in and of itself as long as you're, or if you're not aware of that concept. Um, so just learn all about compounding interest and that will blow your mind. Um, Einstein said it best, compounding interest is the eighth one of the world that just never got the credit that it deserved. Um, can a newbie graduating in the late 20s have 100% stock index portfolio? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm 37. <laughs> um, how old it was there. Um, I still have a hundred percent stock portfolio. So I like, yes, you can, if you understand what that means to you, if you understand the, the ins and out, you, you're prepared for the downside, you're, you, you just go into it all knowing, yes, you can have hundred percent stock portfolio. And Natalie. Oh, so first I grew up in Florida. So I am like so fascinated with how to build a snowman. <laughs> You want to build sure a snowman? I'm sure I would have figured it out eventually. I would have had get to some find, frozen like, going here. I know. <laughs> I, I would have like probably gone out to snow somewhere and had to watch a YouTube video because I did not. So you roll the snow. Sorry. You roll totally the snow. Totally off topic. Yeah. I, point, I grew up in California. Point, though. I was going to say, Aaron, I'm here in California. Yeah. Variation in the theme, right? Yep. Um, but that's a really good analogy. And it, it just, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's really important to be able to sleep at night and to not worry about things. And so if that means that you really want to be all in cash, then that's cool. But the number I give you that you need to save on an annual basis is going to be a lot higher. So, I've, you know, but on the flip side, I have, a, a, you know, when I have a client who calls me and goes, I think the fall is going to be really bad. We need to sell out of everything. I'm like, okay, 
when are you retiring? You know, 10 years. Do you think we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 in 10 years? You know, I just, you've got to keep the long-term perspective. So whatever allocation that's in, you shouldn't be picking up your advisor and asking them to sell. If that's a sign to me that it's time to take some risk off the table. All right, great. And then next question, let's talk a little bit about tilting your portfolio. You know, we've, in Odie's on finance, we've always advocated for a diversified portfolio, but I know Dad does tilt a little towards tech and I tilt a little towards biotech. So what are your guys' opinions? Do you tilt portfolios for your clients uh, in terms of towards a certain sector or anything of that nature? And Natalie, if you want to start this one. So 85% of my portfolios are stuck. You're going to be this much in the S&P 500. You're going to be this much in whatever you're I do take about 15%. And so um, healthcare technology has been a, you know, it's like a 10 to 20 year portion of a portfolio um, since well before COVID. Um, recently, I've been concerned about yield um, through income. And so I've incorporated preferred stock in some of my clients' portfolios because get a 6% dividend yield there on something that as long as you're willing to hold it through a financial crisis, you should be able to be at par. Um, so, um, but that's really, I, I did a really small, I'm embarrassed to say this because I hate gold, but I did a really small precious metal allocation <laughs> earlier this year. And when it hit 30%, I sold because that, you know, that's all, that's all anybody needs in a year. So, um, <laughs> but it's very, very small. I mean, when I'm talking about these, I'm talking about two to five percent and capped at 15 percent total and sometimes not even there um because what would be really tragic is if i made some kind of bet if i bought tesla tomorrow for 15 percent of your portfolio and it it, it went down and all of a sudden your 15 percent becomes seven percent that would be really bad so i tend to shy away from that with a couple of small tweaks and exceptions all right Adam. Yeah, um, similar to Natalie, though, we tilt our portfolios a little bit more on a macro scale. So we take um, the, the the approach of not necessarily trying to do like a corn explorer model of having a core portfolio and then, you know, tilting towards biotech because we think this is in season or, you know, consumers, uh, consumer goods here or manufacturing, like we're not um, sector specific in that we're tilting more based off of factors of, uh, of, of, of markets in general, right? So ours, we do overweight a little bit on the value side of things as opposed to growth. Now I know people are probably screaming because, oh, value sucks, value's dead, value is up or uh, has underperformed growth. It, yeah, it does. And there's periods of time when that happens. But we also know that the fundamental rule of investing is what, buy high and sell low? No, the fundamental rule of investing is we buy low and sell high. And we don't know when these premiums are going to show up in our portfolios, but we do know historically speaking that especially on the small cap side of things, and even more so on a small cap value, when they show up, they show up big time. And so the, you, you have to be in the, you, you have to pay to play. And so you have to out, you have to, if, if you're, if you're committed to that investment process, if you're committed to understanding that over the long term there are different sectors of the market that have historically provided higher risk-adjusted rates of return than other aspects of the market, and you tilt your portfolios to capture some of those expected market returns, there can be a period of a decade where they don't show up. So it is a commitment to an investment philosophy. It's not. I don't, 
sounds like a cliche phrase alert here, but I don't want to say it's not for the faint of heart, but you just have to be committed to the process and understand what's involved in that. Um, so we do tilt towards, you know, towards value. We do tilt towards small um, on, on the fixed income side of things. We do, we do a little bit more of an active play on the fixed income side with some boutique managers that we use. Did also small, small allocation towards, uh, towards some precious metals earlier in the year, similar to Natalie, but it was 4%, same thing. It's nothing like, it, and, and I'll emphasize this, and I think we have a question coming up about gold as well. So um, maybe I can just, you know what, I'll hold that thought. And so you can ask the question, Aaron, and then I'll roll right into that. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. And before we pivot into gold and all of that, uh, if these last 30 minutes for anyone listening, if you just realize you're overwhelmed and you can't do it on your own, uh, we've got two great CFPs on this call that you can always call. So <laughs> just want to throw that quick promo out there. <laughs> And yeah, let's jump into gold. Uh, huge hype around gold, which is surprising considering what it is. Uh, you know, Buffett, Dahlia, they've been talking about putting huge fortunes in their portfolio in gold. Uh, we had Peter Schiff on a couple of weeks ago that just blew everyone's stocks off and said, you got to buy all gold, sell your S&P 500 stocks. So what do you guys think about gold? <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to sit in the same type of academic setting or knowledge setting as Peter Schiff does in that context, but I... You know, a statement like that, I, I, I have a hard time not equating that to something that you'd see Jim Cramer do on Mad Money. Um, it, it, it's, it's a hard, I just think it's a dangerous prospect to try and, you know, we all hear don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so that's a hard pill to swallow to think about selling everything and going all the precious metals, historically speaking. Gold, and again, if we're talking about the long term here, and Natalie and I, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, and I think she'd agree. And you know, we were talking about this before the call. Like, we are fiduciaries; we have a legal obligation to do what is in our client's best interest as it pertains to managing their portfolios, and to do what historically has given us the best possible chance of achieving financial independence. And it comes right back to what I was talking about earlier: what is our performance? What does that mean? Right? Is it if I can get the greatest return possible, that means I can retire early. Great. Okay. What's the risk associated with that? And what happens if you're wrong? And back to what Natalie was saying, right? It, you know, Tesla, she puts a 15% allocation to Tesla and then it now turns into seven. Do the math on what you now need to return just to get back to even, mm -hmm. right? My example that I always use, the extreme example to illustrate that math for new investors that are on the call that don't know what I'm referencing here. Let's, let's use an example. And I'll come back into the gold. I'll wrap it up with gold, but I do want to emphasize this example here. Let's say that we have a $100,000 portfolio and we put it all in Tesla or pick, I don't want to use a specific stock because I don't want to get in trouble with compliance or anything like that. But, but we put it into investment XYZ and it goes down 50% in six months. So that $100,000 is now $50,000. And we sell and we put it back, we put, you know, we, we, we make the decision, the bad investment decision, we sell when it was low and we put it into something else. And that, that other investment that we invested in, in the next six months returns 50%. What's your portfolio worth? Is it a hundred thousand? No, it's not, right? A 50% return on a $50,000 portfolio, your portfolio is now valued at $75,000. And so to the extreme example, if you lose 50% in your portfolio, you need to make a hundred percent return just to get back to even. And so that's why we talk about tying a bow around this and bringing this back to retirement planning as well, is that the closer you get to retirement, managing downside risk becomes more important than capturing upside potential. And when we tie that into precious metals and we understand what is truly behind the curtain there, precious metals, 
gold, silver, copper, I mean, whatever commodity that you want, um, oil, uh, pork, beef, corn, I mean, it doesn't matter what commodity, all you're doing is you're playing against someone else. When we're investing in companies, we're investing in the underlying stock of a publicly traded company that at its core is either producing goods and or services that have a demand, that have a need, that are driven by consumer or government or business demand. Gold is subjected to whatever someone will pay for that uh, for that uh, for that security on any given day, period. And so, for me personally, like like Nana had said, it's like okay, we can allocate a small position over here to potentially capture upside. But if we're wrong, it's still not going to affect the long term outcome of our client's plan. So, all that to say, does it serve a purpose in a portfolio? Yeah, I can. Am I the, am I the advisor talking to clients about that we need to sell everything in the S and P and go to gold? Absolutely not. So, and I think it's interesting that the reason that I made a shift to precious metals, and I'm sure Adam did too, is because typically speaking, when something like COVID happens, we see what's called a flight to quality. So yeah. part of all my portfolios is a high dividend stock yield. I'm just, to this day, I can't understand why that hasn't done better because that is technically <laughs> a flight to quality. But um, but I, it, it was just a simple, when people freak out, this is where they go. So we're going to take a position in this until... People have freaked out and then we're going to exit and take the gains. But it, it, it wasn't because I think gold is a good investment. I mean, gold is a very depression era mentality. You, you know, I mean, think about people who horribly had to flee Europe and they had to put gold in their pockets, sew them in their pocket. I mean, like, you know, if I had to take anything with me, I could take gold. Well, you know, if we look at today, you know, if, if, if everything went to hell in a handbasket and you show up with a gold bar, you know, you should really should be saving seeds if you think we're at the end of the world, not gold. So I just don't functionally don't like it. Um, but this is actually where I wanted to bring up kind of like the very opposite of gold, if that's okay, and have a yeah. quick conversation about Bitcoin. So <laughs> pivot. I like the pivot. Well yeah, done. Because pivot. both of them have very little to no underlying value other than what people think they're worth. Um, you know, there's no earnings off of Bitcoin. There's no earnings off of gold. Um, so I just wanted to say out loud for those of you who are really interested in Bitcoin or um, cryptocurrency, you know, if you want to play with a couple thousand dollars, well, you need more than a couple thousand dollars now, but if you want to play in that space, um, that's fine, but this is not the place. Again, if, if you were to invest in that and it just went to nothing and you put a large amount of your portfolio in it, you know, if you invest in that, it went to millions and millions of dollars, you'd be saying, ha Natalie, you were wrong. And that's great. And I'll shake your hand gladly, but um, it's just not worth it when you're talking about your retirement, so. Yeah, Adam, anything to add? Uh on cryptocurrency no in all and and i you know i respect it i understand it it's not a part of our portfolio i i don't I, i'll just again just being completely honest with everybody in the call i i can't know everything and that is nobody can obviously um i guess a better way to say that i'm smart enough to know that i can't know everything and that there's certain things that uh, i just have chosen not to in, include in our overall portfolio not to say that i don't believe in it or that i don't that i don't uh, trust it or anything like that. It's just, it, it hasn't been a focus of mine. Um, there, there's an advisor, Tyrone Ross in, in, in the profession that 
has absolutely fallen head over heels um, at TR401 on Twitter is his handle. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he's a wonderful human being, all crypto aside as well. But um, yeah, I'd say, no, I don't have a whole lot to add there. And similar to Natalie, like have, have that be the explore part of your portfolio if you want to, to satisfy the curiosity part of your part of your mind. Yeah, we'll say Odie's on finance actually started that month where crypto had the whole huge bull run back in, I believe it was 2018. But yeah, for every, you know, one person that became a millionaire, there's what hundreds that lost everything on it. That's what the real stats were. So if you're on Something Twitter, follow up, follow Bitcoin pizza. I think it was, there's this Twitter account that's out there that shows like what, what this, this guy that bought a pizza with Bitcoin way back when when bitcoin was first mined he gave up a bitcoin to buy a pizza and it shows what that bitcoin would have been worth had he not bought that pizza and it's some it's like tens of millions of dollars it's like, yeah. it's, it's crazy <laughs> for entertainment purposes only if you would ask me if i ever thought i would say that i think cryptocurrency and gold are basically the same kind of investment yeah. i would have said no but i really do there, there's just i don't know what's behind them that's mm. All right, great. Well, let's move on to next question. You guys kind of already answered it, but um, I'll ask it one more time. How do you really feel about individual stocks? It's something we've talked a lot about on the group. People always throwing names out there and speculating and all that. So how does it fall into your investing strategies? Um, So I can very honestly tell you that personally, I do not own a single individual stock. I own some bank stock, but I don't own a single individual stock. I did not buy Apple. I did not buy Tesla. I haven't held onto a share of the bank I work to work for, <laughs> you know, all that. I, I don't believe in it. I don't do it. I don't think I, I can beat someone's, you know, quote unquote, the market. There's a really great study out there that um, is done every year. It's called the SPIVA study, which is S-P-I-V-A. And it looks at large cap or managers across all U.S. asset classes versus their benchmark. And it's just appalling how few managers beat the benchmark on an annual basis and even more appalling how few beat them year after year. I mean, there's like a unicorn or two out there, but um, that you and I can't afford to get into those funds anyway. So, you know, when you look at that kind of information and you look at a 10, 20 year investment time frame, why bother? Now, that being said, if you're dead set on having an individual stock portfolio, I want you to use the Herb Wertheim, that's how you pronounce it, model, where you're building up to just live off of the income. Because I think at least if you can build a portfolio like that and it, you have a concentration and it goes bust, then you still have principle to live off of. But I don't, I don't believe in it in general. So I was, as Natalie was talking, I was doing the math on my own portfolio. I do own uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five individual stocks, and they account for a whopping 3% of my overall investment portfolio. It's fun. Apple is one of them. I bought it when I bought my first iPhone back in 2007. Like it's just, and at that time, full transparency and disclosure to everybody in the call, I started my firm back in 2007. For those of you that started your practice, you remember how much money you had when you first started your practice and how much disposable income? Yeah, it's not like I picked up a thousand shares of Apple at $70 a share, right? It, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a few shares of Apple. So very, very same philosophy to Natalie. It is, 
dare I say, entertainment for me. Just it, it's part of the reason that I do it. To be again, just purely honest with uh, with everybody in the call, I want to experience the emotions that I know clients that I work with experience when they have individual stocks. Now, I don't care about the, like the value of it. Doesn't really. It's it's not influencing my portfolio or my 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 wife's financial plan. Having said that, yeah, when you check a stock, when you look at the price, there is an emotional connection to that. And maybe it's just, you know, I'm a curious bear and I just I just wanted to kind of feel it for the first person. It's like, yeah, I, I do want to experience it. So that was truth, you know, you know, truth be told, one of the reasons that I did it. It's not the serious money though. Um, interesting side note, if anybody is interested in learning about, uh, I guess, argumentatively, or I should say for argument's sake, the one man that actually has solved the market uh, Jim Simons is his name. He started the Renaissance Fund. He's a mathematician. Uh, I believe I, I forget uh, where he where he did his education, but uh, the man who solved the market. How Jim how Jim Simons launched the Quant Revolution. Uh, the Renaissance Fund. It's a closed fund. You can't get into it anymore. The returns that he has had are just absolutely insane, and he's been audited. I mean, it, it's legit. It is absolutely legitimate. Um, but to Natalie's point about whether we're talking about me, Aaron, Dad, anybody else on the call, active fund managers, to quote the Hunger Games here, even though I've never really seen it, the odds are not in our favor. Historically speaking, was looking at some data here from 2000 to 2019, get back to what Natalie was talking about, active investment funds. So active in, active fund managers are, are when an investor buys into a mutual fund that is that is managed by a manager that thinks that they know where the market's going, right? They can outperform, they can select the winners and sell the losers in their, in their portfolio. So they try and beat the market, right? Their goal is to beat the benchmark, typically have higher expense ratios, typically they are not tax efficient. So you really never want to hold an, an actively managed investment account inside of a taxable brokerage account. But looking at the data from 2000 to 2019, out of 2,758 funds that were started, only 41% of them survived. And out of that, only 22 beat their benchmark. So you have a roughly one out of five chance. For fixed income, it's 1,843 funds at the beginning, 42 survived, and only 10% outperformed their benchmark. So fixed income is an even harder nut to crack as well. Now, here's the interesting thing, because I'm sure there's people on here that said, oh, Adam, I just want five-star funds. I'm just going to go to Morningstar, and I'm just going to search for five-star funds, right? I can buy, I can build a portfolio of five-star funds. Boom, ball game. I'm done, right? So interestingly enough, when you look at Morningstar, and I'm not going to get into the business model and how that works and things like that, but let's just take it as it's at, at its core and assume that part of that star rating is tied to the investment performance, which part of it is, okay? So for those that were in the top 25 of the, the top quartile, right? In the previous five years, only 21% for the same time, for the same time period, I'm, calling, I'm talking about rolling five-year periods from 2000 to 2019. In rolling five-year periods, those that were in the top 25 for the previous five years, only 21% of those top 25 were in the top quartile for the next five years. So my, my you know, what you see through the rear view mirror is not what you're going to get looking through the windshield. So don't be beholden to the Morningstar five-star rating. That is, I don't want to say a crapshoot at best, but it's certainly not going to be right. Everything that we do in investing, past performance is what? 
not guarantee a future reason. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Be sure to understand the, understand the risks, fees, charges, and expenses associated with your investment. Call your financial professional if you have right now. Um, so, yeah. Similar to Bitcoin, if you're into individual stocks, great. Yeah, you can make money doing them. But it's not the investment philosophy that I think either of us uh, implement in our firm and wholeheartedly go against it candidly. Now, that being said, I encourage clients to have a Vegas fund is what I call yeah. it. If you really want to like go stack pick, by all means, please set a portion of your portfolio aside and let's manage the rest of it for your retirement. Totally cool with that. So. Yeah. And, and I, I, and I, and I, again, perusing the, the Odies on finance uh, thread, I know there, there are members of your community that dabble in option strategies and that's a strategy as well. That can, that can work well as well there are some really, really bad horror stories around option strategies as well. So if you're worried about day trading and active, active investments, you really need to know what you're doing when you're talking about option strategies and what, you, and what trouble you can get into when you're trading options. Same thing with margin. If you're ever using margin and borrowing on your brokerage account to trade, you have to know what margin calls are. You have to understand what those limits are. Um, be very like I bring that up just as a cautionary tale to make sure that you were going into that with both eyes wide open, educated, and if you lost it all, you'd be fine. That like that's the mentality that I want you to go into that strategy with. Oh yeah, if that yeah, wasn't going to be, <laughs> be a dangerous slope. Yeah, I remember some other investing groups on Facebook, and they'll have members ask, uh, "How do I get into options? How do I put an option on this?" It's like if you're asking that. It's not going to go well for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are other people out there that will gladly teach you how to do options and they will charge you thousands of oh, dollars yeah. <laughs> for their option course. And then they'll ask you to use their option strategy on their brokerage platform. I have a client that we started working with and ended up doing that. Paid $10,000 for this option course. And when they moved the portfolio over to us, they were down like 40 to 50%. It's, it's just, it, yeah, enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's pivot over. A little bit away from what we've been talking about, talk about real estate and uh, how does that fall into your client's portfolio? How do you advise clients on real estate and investing in real estate? And uh, Adam, if you want to start that yep. one. Yeah, I love it. Uh, in multiple different aspects, I think the biggest thing that you need to understand with real estate is aside from how much of the, how much of your quote unquote portfolio you want it to be is what your status is going to be in your involvement in that portfolio and understand that the less involved that you're going to be in that, the more of the return that you can potentially give up because candidly, other people are getting paid to, to, to manage those properties. So whether you're doing flips on your residentials, if you're buying multifamily units, if you're getting into commercial real estate, right? A lot of docs on the call may own their own building, which is a great strategy. It can be a wonderful succession planning and exit strategy option, especially if you're considering selling to private equity, because there's no one that's less interested in your property than a private equity firm. So you can build, uh, I don't want to say competitive immunity, but you, you can, you can ensure hedge, I guess that's a better word, um, hedge some retirement income if you sell to a private equity firm, because you're pretty much going to be able to keep your property and just continue to collect rent. So I love it as a strategy. I think you just need to understand that the one limiting resource, regardless of what we're talking about, is your time. So understand where you can get the greatest return on time because anybody that says, oh, I want to get into real estate so I can get some passive income. <laughs> In multiple different, like the, the, the best way to tie those two together without truly a lot of work 
is if you're going to buy some type of, um, you know, private placement or um, a direct limited, you know, a direct limited partnership or a non-traded real estate investment trust, a non-traded REIT. The, just as with everything, the, the deal is in the buy, right? And so there are some good REITs and there are some bad REITs, the same thing across the board, but understand what you can and want to spend your time on, where you're going to get the greatest return and what you enjoy. Because um, Aaron, you know, like you chuckled, like it's not passive. I mean, maybe it eventually can be somewhat passive, but it, it, it can be a lot of work. So you got to be, you got to know what you're saddling up for. Yeah, Natalie? It's, I, um, I, I agree that I really like real estate as a part of a portfolio. Um, it's a it's a real asset like gold is, but it has cash flow theoretically. Better have cash flow. Um, <laughs> exactly. I am hugely in favor of practice owners owning their own real estate in markets where it makes sense. Again, you know, I have clients in Washington and California, Hawaii. Sometimes it's just doesn't make sense. I mean, the dollars are just too big. And I understand that. But um, for a lot of the country, you know, one, you know, your tenant, they're probably going to pay you, right? <laughs> so two, when you sell your practice, I mean, when, when a client owns their practice real estate, and it, they have a nice 10 year lease agreement, it just does beautiful things for their retirement plan, because it's not typically subject to market forces. Um, my my words of caution with directly owning real estate is real estate is an asset, but it's also a liability. So when you own a stock, you don't have to replace the roof. You don't have to fix the broken pipe. You don't have to pay property taxes every year. So um, where I, I don't think you should get into real real estate, residential or commercial for the sake of getting into real estate. And I don't like a high amount of leverage. Whatever the leverage is, you need to be able to support the cash flow of the debt and you need to be able to support anything that could possibly go wrong. Think about your emergency fund for your personal life. You need one for a piece of real estate um, you need, in case you have no tenant. I mean, that because that's, that's called foreclosure if you get to that point and you can't support it. So um, like it as an asset class, I think there's a lot of possibilities. A lot of, I like the return through cash flow, anything that generates you know, mailbox money um, is a great thing, but just making sure that the numbers and economics of it line up if you're directly investing in real estate. Um, I love that term. The what? Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I, I was going to wait till you're finished. I'm sorry. I've never heard that term. I love it. It's great. <laughs> All right. And then the other thing with private investments is just make sure you don't need the money. It's just like anything else. Like don't invest in something if you think you might need the money. So, um, I, you know, I've seen a lot of, I get sent, I have a client who sends me every new directly invest in real estate, their personal shares of da, 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 and we do all the management and everything. And I'm looking at their, their, their IRRs and it's not that much different than investing in a REIT. So like, why would you take the risk and put somebody else in charge? So again, make sure you know it, you're on top of it, you're managing it and you can afford it. Yeah. And we're trying to get some folks from bigger pockets. On, I'm sure you've heard of them uh, on one of these live events. I think it'd be a great face off because they're all about leveraging and how do you get that next property and putting yourself in a lot of debt. So I think that'd be good. <laughs> but yeah, Don't let them watch this. <laughs> I know. Right? No, I think it'd be good to have you guys on and just have, have a Ask back and forth questions. and see what, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But I mean, I think someone that is in that situation, I mean, their mind's made up, right? Yeah. Let's just call a spade a spade. I mean, right. they're committed to that process. And, I, and to what Natalie had said, 
as long as you go into it planning for the best, but preparing for the worst, as long as you have the cash flow from other locations where you're not truly dependent on that, um, that, that rent coming in to service the debt on the property. I mean, that's, that's exhibit A of House of Cards. That's exactly what that is. And so done, if, if everything plays out right, yeah, it can work out really, really well. And you can turn a few dollars into quite the monopoly board. But all it takes is one domino to fall. And if you don't have a good, solid financial foundation in place to absorb a few things not going perfectly, it's just, you know, it, I, 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 in some situations, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. All right, great. Well, let's go ahead and what is, let's jump to the last question here. We already kind of went over uh, yeah. your plan you have for your clients. Uh, but let's talk about your personal portfolios. I know Adam, you kind of touched on yours already, but um, what do you hold in your personal portfolios? Obviously, you don't have to talk about anything specific. And does it differ from your clients? And if so, why? Man. No, mine doesn't at all. I mean, outside of the handful of individual stocks that I mm -hmm. bought just to just to buy, and it's like, it's Apple, it's AT&T. I mean, they are not fly-by-night companies. They're just good companies that I just wanted to experience owning individual stocks, period, end of game. I spend more time investing in myself, investing in my business, investing in my clients, investing in our household, because I can get a greater return on that. And when I say investing in the household, I'm talking about the return on life, right? Not the return on investment. Not you know, There's a cost of capital in everything that we do. The, 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 the quote unquote important money. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a dimensional fund Vanguard type investor. I just buy the total market, tilt a little bit towards small, tilt a little towards value, lather, rinse, repeat. I, I mean, people will ask me, it's like, what's your for? Like my 401k is with your money, period. And I don't know what the balance of my 401k is right now. So one thing, yeah, that's really important to understand with, um, with our the only advisors and with um it especially fiduciaries we actually file with the state every year and with FINRA and we have to tell them if our personal investment portfolios look different from our clients and if they do we have to tell them why that is and that's like a big red flag for an audit so um you know, and that should be a red flag. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. This shouldn't be a novel idea. Yeah. This should, this should be pretty common sense. Something totally different than you are. I mean, that's crazy. So my portfolio looks exactly like my clients. And um, the only thing that's unique is my husband and I do have a couple of private investments. One's in real estate. We invested in a hand sanitizer bottler that was meeting excess capacity during COVID. That was cool, but like that's not normal. I mean, that's like a couple bucks here and there. But um, but everything else we do is it is to the T what we're I'm doing for clients. So I'm participating in the same risk return um, back uh, equation that they are. And it's right. boring, and that's good. <laughs> so boring. And, and and I think. Oh. Adam, I think we're losing you a little bit. Yeah. Hey, this is deja vu what happened last time. I was going to say, don't do that thing where <laughs> yeah. you start talking and we can't hear you. Yeah, you, you came back. Good. <laughs> Can you hear me again? Yeah. Yeah, you're in. You're, you're clear. All right, cool. Yeah, let's see if we have any questions. Uh, no, mostly just comments. Okay. Great. Yeah, we'll wrap it up here. Once again, I want to give you guys just a, a minute to pitch yourselves and what you're offering to people. So Natalie, if you want to start first. 
Sure. Do I get to go quiet to you guys? <laughs> <laughs> sound works for the last couple of minutes here uh, so um so my firm works with optometric practice owners primarily and employed ods um we do a to z financial planning so everything from reviewing um how your accounts are structured cash flow tax any tax strategies tax planning um looking at how much your practice is worth i'm a certified valuation analyst and a certified exit planning advisor so i work with a lot of um, ODs who are either looking at buying a practice or looking at exiting their practice to make sure that all those numbers make sense and how that impacts their retirement. Um, and then, of course, retirement planning, investment planning, and then getting into the weeds on things like insurance, disability, but also um, homeowners, auto, umbrella insurance, and anything else that's on um, your mind. So um, mostly work with my clients in investment management and uh, fee-only advising. I do do some valuation work, but that's a little less of a portion of my business. So, but love what I do. Love working with ODs. Great, great. And Adam? Yeah, you're good people. I love working with ODs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, very similar to Natty. Fee-only firm here located in, located in Indianapolis. We currently serve ODs in over 20 states all around the country. Um, we have, uh, we've implemented technology and such that we're able to deliver the same type of client experience to any OD as if you were walking through our front door. Uh, we provide everything that a traditional CFP would provide, right? Any typical advisor would provide that is bare bones table stakes. What we do for ODs that really lets them know that they're in the right place is we ask you questions that you didn't know you should be asking yourself because you're an optometrist. So when you find that you're answering questions that either A, your previous advisor never really asked you or you never really asked yourself and they're specific to you because you own an optometry practice and because we know optometry better than, you know, outside of Natalie, myself, and there might be one other, you know, you know, I haven't met anybody else. I think Natalie and I are basically it right now. Like we have forgotten more about optometry than, than any other advisor will ever know about, about about your profession. So we're committed to your profession. We do the, the same things, right? All the practice, or excuse me, all the basic quote unquote financial planning, uh, retirement plan analysis and, uh, and, and, and construction, if you will. We don't manage the retirement plans, but we will help you understand what type of retirement plan is going to be best for your practice to maximize deferrals to owners, whether that's on the cash balance side and or the defined contribution 401k side of things. Exit planning, th those type of, those things, those things as well. I love the fact that Natalie has her CBA and is a certified exit planner as well. That that that's that's huge to have that um, that designation and that type of experience. We both worked with a lot of people that have gone through that very very important life transition of selling an asset that you've spent decades building up. So uh, love working with ODs. Uh, anybody interested in learning more, you can head to integratedpwm.com. That's planning wealth management, integratedpwm.com. Check out the website there um, and learn about what it would take or what it would mean to begin a conversation with us. Or you can also check out, we have a weekly podcast that we release every Monday morning. Comes out about 7 a.m. Eastern time called 2020 Money. We are getting ready to release episode 96. So um, we've had quite the run there and have gotten really good feedback on that as well. So thank you again, uh, Aaron, for, uh, for the opportunity to share the information here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and to anyone listening, if you have any questions or you just feel like can't do it alone anymore, I can't DIY it, reach out to both Adam and Natalie. They're fantastic. They will take care of you. And also thank you for you know tuning in here and taking a break from the national conventions and watching something <laughs> a little bit different. So 
Are those yeah, going I on right now? I think this is more exciting than the national. <laughs> yeah, this is I think this, this is, is way too. better. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually getting substance out of this, right? Exactly. This is, right. There's actually <laughs> some meat behind this, right? Did I did I cross a line there? I hope I did. <laughs> we try not to get too political, but it's all good. obviously you can tell where our interests lie. Yeah. That we're here, so. All right, and then yeah, we will have a, a part three coming up at some point once we figure out a date, and yeah, probably insurance will be the next topic to talk about that we haven't covered yet. So. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll keep you guys updated on that. Until then, have a great night and we will sign off. Thanks. <laughs>